I'm Stuart Kelter, and this is Delving In. Today's guest, Pamela Pereira, is the founder and CEO of Media Savvy Citizens and the New Mexico Chapter Chair of Media Literacy Now. She conducts media literacy trainings with teachers throughout New Mexico, facilitates workshops in digital literacy skill building with families, and leads networking meetings for New Mexico educators statewide and nationally. Her work involves multiple audiences, including students and families, educators, administrators, organizations and businesses, civic leaders, and legislators. In 2021, she received the Media Literacy Community Award by the National Association for Media Literacy Education, and in 2019, the Media Literacy Champion Award by Media Literacy Now. So Pamela, welcome to Delving In. Thank you for having me. So first off, I'd like to recognize the importance of the work you do in helping to prepare young people to develop critical thinking skills through a more sophisticated and thoughtful understanding of all kinds of media, along with the ability to create such media themselves. To the extent that students can succeed in this, they can also be better prepared to contribute to the world and to a vibrant democracy. Last week, in my interview with with Faith Roga, we talked about building a strong foundation of media literacy with young children, Today in our conversation, let's talk about media literacy in upper elementary school through high school. But first, though, uh, tell us how you got interested in this field and how you built on this interest in your professional life. Okay. Back in like in the 90s, the late 90s, I worked for a film festival. First of all, back it up. I went to school for a mass communications degree in the late 90s, mid to late 90s. And I realized that in mass communication, especially, I, I studied advertising and public relations, like all the different forms. I was also a journalist. I realized how all of these communications worked. <laughs> and I didn't really want to work in the field. I was more interested in something different, but I didn't quite know what. And so I ended up working for a film festival here in Taos, New Mexico, called the Taos Talking Picture Film Festival. And the person who started the festival, Josh Bryant, had was British and had, in Britain, everybody's media literate. They showed independent films, but there was also a media forum where like book writers and thinkers of our time were featured and they would come to the festival and speak. We also had a lot of documentaries. So there was this uh, arm of it that was like a media literacy arm. We also had um, a youth teen media conference. And so through working with that festival, wearing many hats, I ended up expanding a lot of the teen made films and taking them after the festival, taking them into classrooms and using that to spur discussions and to actually create media around some of the topics that other teens were addressing with, with the films. And so that led me to begin my career as a media literacy educator because I started like creating curriculum and then going into classrooms and discussing media literacy for health type issues, media literacy to discuss alcohol for prevention, like alcohol, substance abuse, tobacco, things like that. And then slowly I moved into many things, including now my focus is working with teachers. So it sounds like you started as a media creator before he became a media literacy expert, which is, of course, that's a good order to do it because you really understand the power of media, especially uh, film and video, which is, I think of as the kind of the premier, the most powerful uh, type of media because it incorporates so much. 
It does. It does. And our brain, the way our brain works when we're processing images or processing video is different. So every medium has its own unique aesthetic, its own unique form. That's one of the things that we actually discuss are different mediums, looking at different mediums as well. And it's awesome to think about how recent all of this is until, what, 150 years ago, there was just print? Yes. And then before, you have to go back quite a ways before print. There used to be just scribes before a printing press. Yeah. And it's actually fascinating when you think about iconography, right? And symbology. And when we look at like scrolls, we look at even going back to, it was like doing this research into the history of computing and computers and encryption. You go back so many, so far back to look at how far we've been. And that actually is fascinating. That's not something I do very often with teachers and in my teaching, but it's something that I am fascinated with is always to look back and figure out where have we been, where are we now, and where are we going? And that's one of the reasons I do this work is because in that big context, you realize how much We've, we're growing and evolving just like hum, the human race is evolving, just how we continually evolve, right? So we are evolving and now we're moving with these new technologies that we know we need to embrace in order to be prepared for the next things that will be happening and coming our way that are just unknown. Yeah, we can hardly even imagine it. So how did you get into media literacy now? You're a founder of that. How did that happen? No, I'm not the founder of Media Literacy Now. So Media Literacy Now is a state... I am the chapter chair. So... Oh, okay. Media, media Savvy Citizens. Yeah. So Media Literacy Now is my advocacy work. It's my volunteer advocacy work to... And I'll talk about Media Savvy Citizens in a minute. Is my advocacy work that is just making sure that like students in the state of New Mexico get the proper media literacy education and working on supporting and advocating for media literacy type of legislation. And out of that, actually, which is linked, I have been doing media literacy education for many years, for a a few decades. And it's taken many forms. I've had different business names at the same time. And so this new iteration is focused mainly on teachers for teachers and for teacher education and uh, capacity building or professional development uh, of teachers. And so... Media Savvy Citizens, which is my company, came to be in 2019 because there was a legislator, our late legislator, Carlos Cisneros. We were working on a community bill, and he wanted to make sure that there was enough of media literacy in the state. Now, there are entities around the state who do like youth media production and things like that. And, these, and he had the vision, he had the knowledge to understand that if you're doing media, just media production, that's like a, sp- a part of it, like a small part of it, but it's not at all what you would call comprehensive media literacy. And there was some money that got allocated to run a program and there was nobody in the state of New Mexico to do the work. And so this money was coming <laughs> and nobody was there. I, ca- I talked to a bunch of different people to figure out like who's doing what. There was an entity here called the Media Literacy Project, which had closed its doors in 2015. Now we're in 2019. And 
um, nobody's here to do the work. And I figured maybe I'll just rebrand, come up with a just an entity that works with teacher training. And, call, and that's how Media Savvy Citizens came to be, which is my company. Yeah. Yeah, I really like the savvy part of the name. I guess the opposite of savvy would be naive. That so many of us are naive about media. We think, oh, what it was, what's real? And of course, that's the farthest thing from the truth. There's so much that's not real. Even in photography, there's a famous book by Susan Sontag on photography, talking about how photography is not reality, what is not necessarily what's true, because it's just the framing of it and the timing of it. It can be manipulated even before digital manipulations. So savvy is just such a great term to use. Yeah, thank you. And to piggyback on what you're saying as far as what's real and what's not, that's a huge component of where we are now, what, the skills we need to build in everybody and this, where we're going. Little kids as young as two years old or younger, playing with phones and tablets, moving into adulthood. And how are they taught to be savvy with all communications, right? So the media involves all communications, which involves books and prints and flyers and uh, videos and podcasts and just any form of communication through a medium is media and or media has many forms. Being savvy, being able to determine and have certain skills to identify what is real, what is not real, things like that, I think it's pertinent to the survival of our society and our democracy. Of our species. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I hope that we can get and delve into that uh, more as we go along in this interview. I think that's really the, the kind of the core interest, I think, for most people in, in wanting there to be media literacy programs is to help people to become better citizens, to be able to, let's say, vote for people based on what's real rather than what's uh, only an image of somebody. Yeah. And we like in our work, we don't get political. We stay very neutral. We do not tell people what to teach. We just give them the foundational skills to be able to, especially teachers and students, to be able to what processes you have to go through to identify building habits, daily habits of asking questions. Which questions do you ask? What are you looking for? Things like that. So we're preparing teachers and students with these skills, but not necessarily telling people what to teach or how to teach it. But we don't tell them what to teach. We don't talk about, we don't get a political, we don't talk about any of that. Like that's just up to each teacher, up to each school, up to each district. However, there are very basic and important foundational skills that everybody needs. And that's what we're, that's what we focus on. Right. Yeah. I would argue that it's, you can't not be at least somewhat political, even at a meta level, because I think, let's say authoritarian governments or authoritarian candidates or whatever, or if there were, would not want people to be able to dissect media and understand what the messages are. They, they, they want to be able to convey their messages without questioning. So in a way, there's a kind of metapolitical level, I think, that's unavoidable, which isn't to say that's, that's very different than saying, okay, we want people to believe that, let's say, abortion is okay or not okay, or LGBT rights. There's all kinds of controversial subjects. But even deciding to approach those subjects and have the, let's say, the students develop media about it according to what they think is true 
even that would be, I think, somewhat political because I think there are plenty of parents who don't want that in the curriculum in any way whatsoever. Yeah, you have a good point. That's not our work. That would be like on the teachers and what they decide to teach and how they decide to incorporate it into whatever subject that they're teaching. So we're preparing teachers with some foundation. We've worked with a lot of, we've studied and researched through the University of New Mexico, how does media literacy embedded in the curriculum in any curriculum, how does it function? So what a social studies teacher would teach and how they their approach would be different than a computer science or a health teacher or a English language arts teacher. So we we provide the foundation, some foundational ideas and skill building, but then what teachers do with that? Because we really give a lot of autonomy to the teachers as far as they know their curriculum. So we're not trying to get them, we're not giving them like, here's your six weeks of, we give them of this one curriculum and how it used to be. Like here's, it, you, people used to get these like notebooks and they would be like, say this, play this video. <laughs> so literally, it was like that, right? Some, And there are maybe some people that are still doing that. It's not that at all. We are, again, we're looking at a lot of foundational things. We do teach like persuasive t- techniques. And one of the major things that we focus on are these, the pillars of media literacy, which are part of media literacy. The six pillars is the ability to access which is acquire, right? Analyze, which we call reading. Evaluate, which is where people decide what things are. They connect it to other things. The next pillar would be creating, which is writing, if you look at it as literacy. Reflecting is a huge component, which involves thinking. And participating, which involves sharing and acting. And so to be able to access, analyze, evaluate, create, reflect and participate using all forms of communication is the is part of that definition of media literacy and those pillars of media literacy. So we talk about what do students do and what do teachers do? And when students are doing this, how, how do students guide writing? How do teachers guide analyzing? Things like that. And so we have made and created some, for teachers, some pedagogy for them to understand like what it could look like in the classroom and we break that down, but we also support them with a lot of other tools, different courses, the foundations of media literacy course, which covers a lot of other things like key questions of media literacy and things like that and practicing these critical thinking and analyzing using different questions. And also we have a finding reliable sources course, which then specifically focuses on how to decipher, how to build those habits in students for figuring out what's true, what's not, and what's reliable, what's credible, things like that. And my understanding is that ultimately you you would want uh, media literacy um, curricula to be integrated and not just not to be a separate subject, but to be integrated with almost anything, probably most strongly with literature and social studies, but with other subjects as, t- as well, because you, every subject uses media. Yes, it's true. And every subject, what I've done, a lot of media literacy for health, covered a lot of different things in media literacy for health. So I understand what how important and powerful it is when you think about 
something basic. Let's just say a health teacher has to cover the effects of alcohol or something like that. So if that's the case, then you can look at commercials of alcohol commercials, say in high school, and say, what are some stories being told here? Everybody's having a good time. You have a lot more friends. So you start to talk about what are the stories that we're being told. And then that's part of reading and understanding and having discussions around what is being told. And then teachers going to get into the science of things and what's happening to the brain and things like that. But then also what are some of the realities that what is not being told. So that's actually even part of that media literacy process. What stories are not being told? What is being omitted for this message from this story, things like that. And so when you're looking at what you would cover in health, it's a whole different thing than say, if you're designing a video game and if you're designing a video game, then you would be looking at maybe some issues of representation and who might you be impacting and what are you, who are you representing? What stories are you telling? Things like that, that as a designer and as a creator, there are questions that a series of questions, a series of reflections that students should go through in order to understand who they're impacting and what it is they're saying and who their audience is. And as a creator, you have to understand that. And so in order to, you need to read. And so we, so that's what we talk about the reading part, which is the part where you analyze and understand and break it down and decode, and then you create so if you're in math class and you're looking at infographics then and statistics, then you're looking at numbers and you're looking at who's telling the story. There's still a story that somebody's telling and like, where's it coming from? And you can break down the numbers and realize that data has bias. And then you talk about bias. So there's an any grade level that a teacher could address in a way that helps students understand the concepts better of whatever is being taught. So what we've found that the academics actually goes up in when you apply this type of uh, approach. Like if you look at media literacy as a teaching approach at the same time, which is, these are all like, it's like media literacy in the classroom, right? It's a little bit different than when we think about just media literacy in general of what it would look like in a college course. But this is specific for what does media literacy look like in the classroom? and how to support students through helping and transforming the teachers to become media literate so that they can, and it works at different levels because there's a lot there, like just to unpack bias is huge. Right. Yeah. And the teacher has to become fully media literate in order to teach it, obviously. So it seems to me that media literacy as an approach to education, it's almost like the antithesis of rote learning. It's very creative. And one of the best practices for teaching media literacy involves having students creating their own media, which sounds like a lot of fun. And it involves, of course, a lot of group process to with the teacher acting more as a facilitator than being up in the front of the classroom and the students just taking notes. And I'm wondering, how do teachers prepare their students to, to do this? And what are reasonable expectations at progressive grade levels? That's a good question. Because there were two questions in one, and I'm trying to figure out which one do I answer. So let's talk about just the creative, the creation part. So when we work, when we train teachers, we introduce a lot of different. It's like involving educational technology. It may not be this huge production like some 
in some classrooms, the whole classroom could do a film or like groups of students, they break up into groups and um, they team up or maybe a group of three or four or five work on projects or individually. For instance, if somebody is creating a meme, which is media, about any topic, for example, we had some teachers who created a classroom who created memes on Greek goddess and goddesses, Greek gods. And so it was like they could showcase their understanding of that Greek god by studying that Greek god, but then also creating a meme where that Greek god is like saying something and doing something that would show like who that Greek god is. And they could work in teams or individually, say, if they're doing memes. So we can use like simple productions or it could be students recording uh, a screencast on Zoom or just a screen using a screencasting platform, or it could be recording audio, just audio responses to specific things, or it could actually involve a bigger production. So you want to start small and then build on that. So as the teacher gets more and more comfortable with using different mediums and the classroom becomes maybe towards the end of the year, then you have bigger production. So you don't start with a big production. You start with little stuff and get students used to using media as a way to communicate and showcase learning a lot of times. And sometimes we've had productions. We had a, we've had kids create book trailers with iMovie. We've had kids create podcasts on different topics. Those are the bigger productions. And we've had kids creating some like mini films and stop motion animation, but we've also had simple creating graphics and creating flyers and things like that. There was a science teacher who was like studying mnemonics And they had a contest. So each student, I don't know if they, I don't remember if they worked in groups. I think it was just individual students who had to showcase their learning and look at that. So it's, it could be anything the teacher chooses. And if you're studying at the form, you have to study the form first before you create. And so part of that involves that critical thinking around what is this form and looking at different examples and then creating different things. And so to continue answering your question, which is how do you approach this at different grade levels? It changes at each grade level. So I've worked, I have a a school that I work with here and we're working K through, it's a third year immersing in K through eighth grade. And we have done a lot of different things for each grade level. So sometimes, and they're really more moving towards like media arts. So they really want to use a lot of technology. So that school is different than other schools. But in that school, kids, like in, I think it was like kindergarten, like some students like illustrated, they created stories and they illustrated their background. So they drew, that's media, right? That's a form of of media is like communicating something. So they created these backgrounds and then they recorded themselves telling the story of what was happening in that specific, in their story. That was like one grade. Whereas in the like fifth grade, they were working on podcasts and they went around interviewing people on all kinds of different topics, like what the problem with dogs in the neighborhoods. So it's like comedic when it was funny and it was addressing an issue. It was very creative. The teachers like gave 
rein to the students to address different things that they wanted to talk about. And so at every grade level, it's up to the teacher. So what we do is just make sure that we're supporting teachers, training them on different mediums, and also supporting them along the way as they move through, if they have questions or depending on how deeply we're working with them. In that school, we usually work for like the whole spring semester. And the teachers have gone through a series of trainings and understand like this year, we're only focusing on audio. The whole entire school is getting trained on pre-production and post-production of audio. And the production is we're using a platform that's like for education because there are so many different ways and accessible ways of actually being able to do a production without doing this huge production. You can use tool, simple tools. You just need like a handheld recorder and do everything with that. You could even use your phone. The, the, it's not going to sound as good. So it depends on the aim and the focus of the school, the what the principal wants, what the teachers want. Some productions are just only happen in the classroom and they can be super simple and some can be way more complicated and involve like it's a whole like group project. The creation process allows students to really understand a form deeply because they're going through that process. And so what it looks like in any classroom is the idea would be that you're linking it to Abraham Lincoln. You're linking it to whatever is happening in that curriculum or whatever topic may be. So it's being linked to whatever is, is being taught in the classroom. So that's our approach, but the what a teacher does and how they do it is up to them and their mm-hmm. comfort level. Do, do teachers talk about their students having a kind of aha moment when they're doing this? Do teachers tell you stories about that? A lot of aha moments. Yes, a lot of aha moments. If we're talking about critical thinking, let's talk about a little bit critical thinking, right? And analyzing and evaluating information or things like that. So if we talk about that, there are a lot of assumptions that we're adults make about students. Oh, they're digital natives. They know everything. They know how to do everything. They know everything. As it turns out, they might know like how to use their phone, but they don't necessarily know how to translate that to other mediums. And they don't necessarily think of each form of communication. They don't decode. They don't really have those skills to the code, right? And to break it down and to create. And some students, when they're uh, making, say, even the simplest screen screencasts, they're like, oh, you mean I could be a YouTuber? This is how easy it is? You're just like, that's how they do it? It's like, yeah. Yeah, you could use this or you could use a little webcam or you can get so for the, the, the production. If you're talking about critical thinking, then it's I saw it on the internet. I thought that this was real or how to do a proper search. So now that's information, looking at information, the information literacy part of media literacy. So you're looking at that. It's not going to the first source when you're doing research. So a lot of what we teach or some of what we teach is also like, how does that function? Like when you're doing research, how are you finding sources? So that's reading as well. And that's the critical thinking of not going to your first source. So the aha moments for students are realizing that there's a problem, like you don't go to the first source, you have to ask questions and they realize, oh, I used to think just because it was like, say somebody who was popular, like on YouTube, that was the reality. 
And now we get into, say, in high school, we're really delving into deep fakes and manipulated content way more than, say, at the elementary level. Let's shift gears a little bit and talk about New Mexico. Since you're in New Mexico and I'm in New Mexico and our listenership is here, at least the broadcast listenership, it's been widely reported that New Mexico has for years ranked at or near the bottom on standardized test scores in math and reading. So how can media literacy reverse this? And is there, in fact, some evidence that it's helping? Of course, other states are also doing media literacy, but maybe it, it can level the playing field in some way. So do we have evidence about how it's working? And you know, particularly, does it improve students' reading comprehension also along the way? Yes, it does. Um, in fact, we have uh, run a series of pilots um, in the state of New Mexico with the University of New Mexico. And we're looking again, our work is like, what does it look like in the classroom? How do we embed this in the classroom? And what are some of those uh, outcomes? And so we have created like a model for teaching media literacy for training teachers and have an increased confidence in instruction. And what we're seeing is that students understanding of, again, of the content, of the classroom content. Their engagement level is huge. Like, just engagement is such a big, even teacher engagement, actually. We have this, like, teacher uh, retention problem right now. In other words, it's more fun. It's, it can be more fun to be a teacher and more, more fun to be a student. Yeah, it's more engaging and teachers feel like now they're becoming more relevant. Now they're becoming that 21st century teacher. Now they're seeing their students go up, like some measure it and they're like, oh, my students in one classroom, we had one social study teacher that said that took a unit before media literacy was introduced. So she had figured out what the how the students scored and then took the same unit and media literacy that unit it was revamped redesigned the whole unit to engage students in a different way and she said that there was like a six percent increase in engagement and outcomes i think it was six percent so we have a lot of that where some people are data driven so they'll look at like how do students perform before and after so one of the things that we do in our extensive we have like a full year program and so through that we have teachers redesign units of study. So they take a unit that they're already teaching and then they infuse media literacy into it. And teachers recognize that they were already doing parts of media literacy and what they were teaching, but then they support other uh, components that they realize where the gaps are, right? Like that, that they're not necessarily doing a comprehensive approach to media literacy. And so students engage more and their academics go up, their understanding of the content goes up. So it's like directly linked because we're using media literacy education as an approach to teaching, which really is creating 21st century teachers. We talk about this like 21st century, like we're deep in that in the 21st century at this point. And we're teaching things to teachers that they hadn't like they hadn't been prepared as in-service teachers teachers who are in the classroom. They're not necessarily prepared, even pre-service teachers, even teachers who have been, who are studying to be teachers. Like if you look at the pre-service learning programs, there's not necessarily a huge amount of media literacy that has to be taught 
or hardly any, actually. It's like an elective, maybe, for teachers. So there's like a lack of understanding. And it, gum- it comes back to education, because I think if people understood and how impactful it is as, as this approach, we're not telling people what to teach, but it's an approach to teaching, but it's also a way to engage students and a way to increase the academics, increase the understanding of the content, and increase student retention and teacher retention. Like, how can you go wrong? And at the same time, creating a more thoughtful, ethical society. So you may not have the answer to this, but I'm wondering what impact media literacy has on the enjoyment of reading books. Because I I think it's been true for quite a while now that people are not reading, not as many people are reading actual books as they used to. And a lot of Young people are reading mainly online or reading text. Reading actual books is something that seems to be uh, only a, a slice of the, of the population is doing. Does media literacy have an impact on that? Is there more of an interest in reading books? Teachers are still assigning books, I would assume, to, to read at home. Yeah, and, and so there's the traditional literacy, right? So when we talk about media literacy and literacy in general, right? Like we read today, we are reading images, we're reading photographs, we're reading icons, we're reading websites, we're reading all kinds of different things that we don't even realize is called reading. And then we write these things. When you're reading like that traditional reading and engagement, I guess it depends on how you're defining it. We might introduce graphic novels, for instance, where you're reading not just the words, but you're also reading the images. You're reading the illustrations, which tell you so much. There's so much information there. It's a high level reading, which people don't even realize a a graphic novel is. And the engagement level will go up. So you might be reading, and one of the approaches that certain teachers do is they'll read a traditional text, and then they might read that uh, a video, somebody was, I don't know, studying um, Harriet Tubman. And so there was like an essay and then there was a video and then there was like, like, then there was like, just like a book without any words. And so they looked at three different forms of a story and then did comparisons. <laughs> if they're under, they, they did the comparisons through comparing. You're now really high level critical thinking skills. You're reflecting on different forms and then your understanding of the story of Harriet Tubman through regular text and the different a text in media literacy, we call any text, the media text. So a text without any words, which is just visuals, and then a text with images and and word or, or, or a video, right? Or listening to a video. So you're looking at all these different things and doing comparisons, et cetera. And the level of understanding and the level of engagement of that student to actually read a bunch of words goes up because it's a challenge, because it's exciting, because they're not just read this book, right? That they're reading a book. Maybe they're reading a book. Like I had um, the one younger kids, there was like a second grade classroom that made book trailers. And so they had to read the book and then they illustrated um, they had to create an illustration, and then from that, they then created their book trailer. So they're under. So then their engagement, and they're like, "Oh, how do you synthesize a whole book into thirty seconds of an into an iMovie book trailer? 
these were second and third graders. It was a combined classroom. And so then they had to go back to the book and reference the book. And then they had to like, because they were creating something about the book and their reading level, their comprehension, their curiosity just went, goes way up. Yeah, that's a great example of you know, using one uh, kind of media to enhance the engagement with the other. So let's, with this last segment, talk about uh, media literacy as a means of equipping students with the tools needed to recognize and grapple with disinformation, fake news, propaganda, trolls, scams, bots, and deep fakes. So what are these and how do students learn about them uh, at different grade levels, let's say, and, and how do you cultivate a culture of critical thinking that students incorporate as a lifelong habit in dealing with these things? Because this is only getting worse. Yeah. And this is such an important topic. And it's also can be taught at every grade level. As early as third grade, students are doing research projects. My son, when he was in third grade, he was assigned that he needed to do a research project and he was, everybody was assigned a flower. He needed to do calendula and do research on calendula. So he did a board, like a, like a science board kind of thing, like a physical poster board, like trip three of them, and then had to show the different things that he learned about calendula. And he, I don't remember if he chose that or, or whether that was assigned to him, the health benefits of calendula. How much misinformation is there on the health benefits of, of calendula? Something as simple as that. Now, the, here's an opportunity. So we have teachers and students, teachers have to understand that these opportunities are that are there in the classroom to be able to teach about this as early as third grade or sooner. If a student is having to go out and do research, there you go. You send them to the internet to find something, there you go. There's another opportunity. We're filled with opportunities to be able to address copyright issues, to address what's real, what's not, and in these simple ways so that you start and you build building blocks. By the time they get to high school, we're really getting into maybe deep fakes or conspiracies and things like that. So, so in third grade, if they're looking at doing a research, and I'm just going to use that example because I think it's easier for people to understand how we can all apply that. So then we, the, the kid goes online and not every New Mexico school has a librarian who is actually, if they do, are, the question is, are they properly trained to, to support students in this information literacy and teaching them how to decipher information and how to actually approach doing proper research, which, which is very important because when you're doing a proper research, right, now you have to look at sources and which source do I believe, like, where do I go? You know what, like if I'm looking at the health benefits of calendula, am I going to go to a health a YouTube video? Then I'm looking at author, like who's telling the story? Where is it coming from? Is it just like a popular, is it an MD? Is it like a doctor of what? So all of a sudden, it's this huge can of worms and a great opportunity to teach about like how to do research, how to do proper research, looking at who the author is, looking at subject matter expertise. Those two things. And the third thing, fact versus opinion. The first and foremost, fact versus opinion. Is this a fact or is it an opinion? To be able to know that, even as an adult, <laughs> some adults don't know that, is huge. Is this a fact or is this an opinion? Number one. Two, who is the author? Who is telling the story? 
who's this person? Who's the entity that's like talking? Who's doing the talking? And number three, are they experts? Is it like if you're looking at the health benefits of calendula, then it has to be like somebody who knows, not just, oh, I used it on micro. Like it has to be somebody who's actually has a knowledge of actually true health benefits versus hearsay. Otherwise it's all hearsay. So then we can start with that, right? We can start with that at the younger ages and then build on that. So then as you move through every, most classrooms at elementary from third grade up, students are having to do research, are having to write research papers, are having to go to the internet to look at sources. They have, sometimes they have to cite sources. So then you go into sources, especially in the middle, by the time you get to fifth grade and up, who are these sources? Things like that. So then you delve into the nuances of of information and misinformation. And again, it goes back to these building blocks and building habits of asking those questions of who's the author? Is this a subject matter expert? What are those questions that should be asking to look at different things? So if we're looking at deep fakes, just take that as an example. A deep fake for people who don't know is a fake video of somebody saying things and doing things. So it's using AI and using accessible technology that people use. And you can, you maybe have seen, there, there used to be some of President Obama because you could take his voice, the AI studies the voice of President Obama, whose intonation is very specific, right? Like it's very, is easy to identify like when he's speaking. So then he has his mannerisms. So the AI would study the mannerisms. And then you take an actor, and then you superimpose the actor is now saying things, but then you superimpose like the way, the mannerisms of President Obama in his looks and then his voice. And now this actor. And so then it blends and you can watch a bunch of videos on it that are out there. Yeah, and they, man- they managed to match it with the lip movement as well. The AI. Yeah, exactly. And so then it looks real. So then we have to go through and teach students like how to identify a deep fake, right? Which is like, what are you looking for? You have to ask, is this when they're looking at videos, is this real? Every time they're interacting with something, is this real? Could this be a deep fake? How do I identify it? Is the speech a little bit stalled? Is this, does the speech shift? Is it more robotic? So then you start, what about the eyes? Look at those eyes. Like very specific little things, right? Are people blinking? Are they? So there are very specific things that like people can look at when they're looking at deep fakes. You could really nerd out if you're just starting deep fakes. If you could really nerd out and do the same, something similar, but looking at different things when you're looking at conspiracy theories and et cetera, et cetera. So then you're able to go deep into these ideas to identify what a deep fake is and things like that. But there are these building blocks. So it goes back to the building blocks and it goes back to building habits of asking questions and then figuring out, is it credible or not? Yeah. And of course, the deep fakes are going to get so good that they're indistinguishable from the real thing, in which case students will need to learn to check other sources to see where that uh, video came from in the first place. 
Yeah, exactly. And and there are lots of things like you can do reverse image search for just like images and you can plop it into a reverse image search engine. And as things grow, other things come up. And if you do a reverse image search just for an image to figure out where's it come from, it can, you can plop it into a, a search engine and it could show you where it originated. So as deep fakes evolve, so is the technology to counter it. So we have to be aware of that. So then knowing where we go to figure out, to plop that video is it, whether to figure out is this video real or not. So understanding that we have to have faith. We can't just rely also on ourselves because there's, it's moving so fast, it's moving so quickly. So we have to have faith in credible sources, incredible people who are doing good work, who understand, who are countering, creating technologies to identify a deep fake. So we might look at different things, but then you might plop it in the same way that you can plop in an image into a reverse image search to figure out the source. We'll be able to do that with deep fakes. And I think that's important, but to have those foundational skills of understanding and building those habits and students from as early as elementary school, as we move up the grades and also as we move through technologies, because we have a lot of new technologies coming to us that we need to be asking questions about and working with. Do you recommend that teachers alert students to particular websites for this purpose, such such as SourceWatch, which is a website that identifies the funding source of of organizations, or there's uh, also websites that evaluate media bias that kind of count up, particularly in, in, in the political sphere, they'll count up how many stories are leaning this direction or that direction. So like the New York Times, for instance, is just left of center, not far left of center, which it's often depicted as. But there are other sources that are more extreme in one direction or the other. So do do teachers actually uh, let students know, well, why don't you try this side or that side? Because even at a meta level, this still can be seen as biased by different people because there's, there's, there's no perfect evaluation method for these things. Yeah. And so I do understand that, right? And I think Um, It's very important to, we do actually lead, provide sources to teachers when we're discussing like reliability of sources. If they're looking at news and news literacy, we do provide the media bias fact check or Adfontes media and different to, to figure out bias. So what it does is it gives you a gauge. It gives you it's like going, it's like going to the doctor and then getting, and the doctor going through and figuring out a diagnosis. It could be this or it could be this, etc. So in a similar way, you go and you take it, you plug it in and you realize that there are people who have been trained, who go through and use certain ways. And a lot of these sources are actually disclosed how they determine the bias, whether they're like to understand if something is left sub center. So then you, as a teacher, we also support what does if you're looking at news, what is left, what is right, what are some to understand like where the center is, to break that down. So understanding that first, and then looking at students can go in and read the rhetoric and do they have loaded words, like what words here might be loaded and what words within the text, like a news article, can indicate whether something's leaning right or leaning left. Right. So identifying that 
So it's not just like here, go to the source, but also identifying it and preparing students to understand what is left-leaning mean? What does right-leaning mean? What are the components of a person who leans to the left and leans to the right, far left, far right? And where's the middle? So identifying those things just as a basic foundational knowledge, say, could happen. We're talking about news literacy now. We're talking about bias. So we're talking about maybe social studies. That could happen in a social studies class. We're not telling somebody it's good to know. We're not saying you can't think this way, but then they know, oh, that's interesting. Some of my ideas are actually leaning towards this way or leaning towards, oh, my parents think or my family thinks this way. Just identifying that to understand where a source comes from is so important. And then we give them different sources that they could go back to and check. So usually they'll, if you go to say media bias fact check, they have a media bias chart or think, or media bias fact check, I think they're called. They they will tell you like whether some of the information like the is mostly factual or whether it's not factual. So that when you plug it in and you plug in a source, you can then begin to see why and how they got to that information. And also they tell you like it's left-leaning or right-leaning and why. So there's like an explanation, but you can't just like believe what somebody else is thinking. You got to think for yourself at the same time. So that's what we need to do is do both. Yes, you can have these sources, but also be prepared to know how to identify bias. Yeah, and, and one of the things we haven't mentioned yet is generative AI, the latest challenge in, in doing in uh, understanding what's true and what's not true. And we have this thing called ChatGPT doing things like hallucinating, and which is a little bit of a silly word, but it means it makes things up. That is, but it sounds so incredibly real. That's going to be a tremendous challenge, I think, for the future, is not relying on having to fact check these uh, AI-generated passages. Well, ChatGPT is fascinating, and it's exciting, and at the same time, it's complex and full of bias. So knowing that is important. We actually launched our a pilot this specific year. As we were doing the conference, we were doing a three-day conference with teachers in Albuquerque at UNM. And as we were doing that, ChatGPT got released. It was early January. So there was all this discussion. And then we had a community of practice where throughout the year, we were meeting with teachers monthly in different groups. Um, and ChatGPT came up in English class. It came up in social studies and whatever groups that we were working with. And there was one specific teacher who took ChatGPT and printed out a text. Because, okay, so let's back it up really quick. So ChatGPT, what it does is it, it gathers a bunch of information on any specific topic and then puts it together into one form. So you can ask a question and it would give you an answer just to simplify it for people who have no idea what this is. So you could ask, what is media literacy? And it might give you a ton of information, but also there's a lot of misinformation out there. And so it still has some of that misinformation because it's gathering all this information and putting it and giving you an answer. It's collating from the internet whether it's true or not. Exactly. It's just treating all of the internet as true, <laughs> basically. Yeah, and also there's a lot of things on the internet and a lot of people who are loud on the internet. And so it might take the loudest voices and, and put it into uh, a pretend true idea. Loud meaning the most frequently repeated. Yeah, exactly. That's what you mean by loud. Yeah, exactly. And so 
then so we had one teacher you know because i don't want to get too much into hallucination before we get into what is chat gpt and what could it look like in the classroom we had one teacher who they asked certain questions of chat gpt they printed the answers they put them on the wall and students and groups went around and highlighted what they felt were because they had been reading analyzing asking questions they had gone through all of this practice of like how to like decode messages that they decoded the chat GPT messages of the questions they asked and they looked at what of this is actually not credible and why. And so students were able, because they have to justify their answers. So they were able to go through and figure out what was not necessarily true and why. And the hallucination idea, like just understanding that chat GPT has a lot of bias and some of it is not true. Just knowing that is important as a basic knowledge. We just have a few minutes left and I just want to make sure I get a chance to ask this question. Okay. Um, so how do you help students identify and combat their own confirmation bias? And how do you avoid them hunkering down into their own information silo? <laughs> For students who understand, A, what bias is, is important. For students to understand, to identify, oh, my point of view is if they've gone through and be, they're truly media literate, they would know where their uh, thoughts and their ideas are leaning, right? And identifying bias. So start with that. And there are ways that we can talk about and address confirmation bias. And first, we always define and then study and then look at examples to understand what confirmation bias is. And there's a self-reflection component. There's a reflection component in our pillars of media literacy. So when they're creating anything, usually there's a part of, if they're creating something like, what am I omitting from the message? Just that basic question, which is, I'm only telling this part of the story, but not this. So there's a reflection component within their own creation, within their own thoughts, whether it's like a, a paragraph that they wrote or a video that they made that there, there's a continual reflection component at all the stages. And so if they do that, then they'll be able to identify their own confirmation bias, ideally. I would think a lot depends on the skill of the teacher to foster an atmosphere where open debate is allowed and that there's hopefully a diversity of opinions within the classroom that, that can be heard from. And that's, I think, probably one of the best ways to model not being stuck in, in a confirmation bias and only talking to people who already agree with you. Yes. And we've had actually teachers who were able to approach difficult subjects because they're able to do it in a neutral way. The teacher could feel more comfortable creating a safe space for teachers, for students to be able to express their opinions, no judgment zone and understand we are all complex human beings. We have our own way of thinking and because of what we've been exposed to and to understand that and students to safely uh, respect each other's point of view without insulting each other. That is like classroom culture. So that's up to the teacher and the kind of culture that they create. And teachers are able to, not everybody, but some teachers are able to do it in a way that feels very safe for the classroom and for the teacher. I think, unfortunately, we've run out of time. So thank you so much, Pamela Barrera, the founder and CEO of Media Savvy Citizens and the New Mexico Chapter Chair of Media Literacy Now. Thank you so much for coming on to Delving In. Thank you so much for having me. I'm Stuart Kelter, and you have been listening to the podcast edition of Delving In, originally broadcast on KTALLP, the community radio station in Las Cruces, New Mexico. 
please visit our website, lccommunityradio.org, and see what KTAL has to offer. We appreciate listener donations to help us stay on the air and to continue to grow in cyberspace.